This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Last week, as you know, I was up at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies leading a weekend uh, workshop. And it's the sort of thing that I'm usually uh, reluctant to do. I'm never uh, quite sure how valuable it is to... Uh, give a series of uh, talks to uh, a group of people with uh, very different backgrounds and practice and uh, who don't know necessarily know my work or where I'm coming from. I don't know who they are and where they're coming from. And I suppose Having worked all these years as a psychotherapist, I see how uncertain and slow and incremental change can be, even when you see somebody every week for years on end. And so it's a big question mark about uh, what are you doing when you go talk to a group of strangers like that for a weekend? But it's also the case that uh, a single encounter can make a big impact on a person. Uh, something can get set in motion. And people do get uh, inspired, see things suddenly from a different way, and you never know what's going to uh, make a difference in someone's life. So once a year, I've uh, been letting myself get talked into it. Um, many years back, uh, Joko was persuaded to come lead a session in New York only because uh, we shamelessly bribed her uh, with tickets to uh, the U.S. Open in Forest Hills. And uh, in that spirit, each year, uh, my co-leader, Max Ernstein, uh, shamelessly bribed me with a uh, wonderful omakase sushi dinner as a way to persuade me to uh, give these workshops. Uh, so as long as the bribes keep coming, I guess I'll uh, do it for another year. I thought I would uh, just briefly recapitulate some of the themes from that workshop and try to tie it into uh, what we're uh, reading this week in uh, Garfield. Because in a certain way, the ongoing theme that we've been exploring is the way that our practice 
get shaped and often uh, misshaped by the metaphors that we use in practice and sometimes in a kind of automatic or unthinking way we get caught up in a certain picture of what we think we're doing or what we think is supposed to be happening. And up at Barry, I was using the work of uh, two philosophers, one um, Wolfred Sellers and the other uh, Victor Horry, to take a look at um, what's often very common trope in uh, Zen uh, Buddhism, which is the idea that our practice is going to allow us to see reality directly. And it'll do that by allowing us to drop the conceptual filters that supposedly stand between us and pure perception. Sellers was uh, looking at this idea from uh, the perspective of a critique of uh, empiricism. He knew nothing about Buddhism and uh, was making this argument for a very different kind of reason, although it's been picked up by Buddhists, not just by me. Uh, Jay Garfield has edited a whole book on sellers and Buddhist philosophy, so the idea isn't just totally idiosyncratic to me. Uh, but Sellers was uh, addressing a kind of philosophy of science, which imagined that we could start with something like the raw data of pure sensation, of raw feels, and that this could be conceptually free, and it, but that would be the foundation or building blocks on which scientific theory could be built. We would start with something like uncontaminated sense data. But Seller's uh, basic argument is that if sense data was going to be truly concept-free, it would just be a uh, incohate mass of uh, incomprehensible uh, sensation. And that when our actual ordinary experience is that we don't just see, we see as, and that's the basic distinction that he's drawing all the time, the difference between seeing and seeing as. We see something as red, we know that it is a color, we know it's a color distinct from green, and we have all sorts of ways in which we begin to sort out whether we're, uh, seeing it under the right conditions that we can actually tell what the color is. Uh, 
And he goes on to this in a lot of very specific detail, which was, uh, I admit, quite uh, over the head of the most people at the workshop, but they they had to indulge me. Uh, and we, one of the things we're tr he's trying to um, emphasize is that life never comes at us in little discrete bits and pieces that we then assemble into holes, to whole pictures, but rather, in his words, to know any one thing, you have to know a lot of other things. And that our perception is actually always organized and structured uh, conceptually and linguistically. And it's one of our curative fantasies uh, that there's such a thing as going beyond concepts and language into something uh, immaculate uh, and pure, uncontaminated. That itself is a kind of metaphor and uh, an idealization. And the other thing we were looking at by Victor Horry uh, uh, came at this from a somewhat different direction because he's uh, a philosopher who spent many years training in a Rinzai monastery. Uh, we were looking at an article of his uh, called Koan and Kensho in the Rinzai Zen Curriculum. And he talks about um, not just what uh, Sellers was talking about, about the impossibility of uh, uh, perception uncontaminated by concepts, but the further fantasy of pure consciousness, an awareness that has is stripped of all content so that there is uh, what, something like what he was calling pure consciousness, pure awareness prior uh, to uh, sound and sight and smell and taste, right? That there's a kind of um, pure mirror of, con uh, of consciousness before anything shows up in the mirror. And again, he sort of says that people get captivated by this image, but it's not at all uh, how Zen works or what Kensho is about. Uh, that Zen training is not about emptying the mind or consciousness or purifying it, but uniting it with activity. Uh, by being wholehearted and non-separate in the midst of all sorts of mundane activities, which for monks often involve uh, work and cleaning and cooking and doing the dishes and all sorts of things like that. Now, the place uh, where I want to tie this in with uh, Garfield today is that I think that he's looking at the, the concept of no self, 
or considering self as an illusion in a way that's very parallel to the idea of perception uncontaminated by concepts. He, he sets up this idea that what we ordinarily call the self is an illusion and that there's going to be this some kind of realization of no self that is going to be a radical transformation in consciousness. Now, that's a the dilemma. Let me just back up and say the dilemma of no self is something that in the Buddhist literature can get valorized in a way that it becomes equated with a uh, mystical experience that we can sort of spend years uh, pursuing. Uh, Garfield wants philosophically to present both simultaneously the sort of the possibility of thinking about persons rather than selves as a kind of much more ordinary language way of getting away from the self as timeless uh, and uh, the lack of essence, uh, stop identifying the self with an immortal soul or things like that. Uh, but at the same time, he, he sort of, uh, it's very hooked into the, the testimony of mystics who, uh, you know, are supposed to have penetrated this illusion into a whole other state of consciousness. Now, we, we, I don't want to go into whether there's special states in which you might have some revelation of the emptiness of self. Uh, all sorts of things like that can happen in practice or be cultivated. But the bottom line is that they will never eliminate our basic uh, minimal sense of self, which was the subject of this chapter. And There are basic ways in which the experience of self is something he, he finally, at the end of the chapter, comes around to saying, well, it just feels like we have selves. No matter how much you understand it or think it's an illusion, or even if yesterday you had some big experience of the unity of all consciousness and no separate self, well, today you wake up, have breakfast, and make your oatmeal, and you're back uh, operating with a self. And this is um, completely unavoidable because a fundamental sense of self is involved, first of all, with the experience of agency. Uh, just uh, putting water in the pan, setting it to boil, measuring the oatmeal, 
putting it in the pot and cooking it. In all these ways, you're engaged in actions that you feel, you know, feel instrumental. It feels I'm doing this, I'm picking this up. I know when I pick it up, it's going to go from here to there and have this effect. And the whole sense of being able to have agency over my body and objects in the world is a big part of who I am. It's what a self is. Uh, we, we see that in these little ways of uh, just being able to, to feel and do, but it's also what constitutes a self in the bigger picture of our life. Uh, I can sing, I can walk, I can play music, I can read a book, I can function in the world as a psychiatrist, I'm a parent. All these are activities in the world that I do and their relationships I have. But the sense of self is not, doesn't precede these things, it precipitates out of them. Uh, I, my sense of who I am uh, comes from doing. Uh, I am my abilities and capacities and actions and habits. That's what my sense of myself is. And as long as I'm functioning in life, uh, all these things precipitate out as an ongoing sense of self. Uh, in this chapter, you also get a, a much more basic sense of the self-reflexivity of consciousness in that whenever I'm aware of something, I experience it as my experience. There's a kind of way in which I'm having the experience. It's not completely depersonalized or dissociated. Uh, I'm making the meal for my breakfast. Uh, and when I eat the oatmeal, I'm tasting it. I, I, I realize the spoon is going into my mouth and I'm having the sensation of taste and temperature. Uh, there's a basic mindness that is intrinsic to having any kind of experience at all. This isn't going anywhere. This is part of what it is to be conscious and what it is to be aware. And Garfield, I think, sometimes acts as if uh, to acknowledge the reflexivity of consciousness or the mindness of experience or the reality of agency uh, somehow automatically turns you into a Cartesian philosopher uh, positing the existence of a self uh, behind the scenes doing all these things. We don't have to have a, uh, uh, a, <coughs> excuse me, a philosophical conception 
of a separate permanent inner essence in order to have these experiences of reflexivity and mindness and agency. They are, uh, they don't just come with the territory, they are the territory. That is the phenomenology of what consciousness is. Uh, uh, as Wittgenstein tells us, we want to be careful not to be deceived by the grammar of our language when we talk about these experiences and start positing to ourselves the kind of separate, immaterial, immortal soul that you can get uh, in Descartes or in uh, early Indo Indian philosophy. Uh, but to dispel that philosophical illusion is not the same as trying to dispel the phenomenology of uh, what consciousness feels like. That we have to accept and li uh, live in the midst of. And I go on about this because I think that when we practice, we can get all caught up in thinking we're not there yet or doing it wrong because we continue to have perfectly ordinary experiences of thoughts and feelings and my own sense of self as I practice. And part of us in the background is always sort of imagining, well, this can't really be it because it's just too ordinary. And we've got lurking in the background these sort of fantastic uh, ideas of what no self is supposed to feel like or what it's supposed to be to attain this or what concept-free perception is supposed to be or what pure mm -hmm. consciousness is all about. All these things are kind, I think, part and parcel of the curative fantasies that keep us chasing something that's always on a receding horizon. And if I go on about this philosophical stuff at such great length, it's really to try to uh, puncture the bubble of some of these uh, fantasies of what uh, practice or enlightenment is supposed to be like. Because I think that's the only way it brings us back to our ordinary mind, which in fact is the way. <laughs>